This is Chapter Fifty Five of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter Fifty Five. I began to get tired of staying in one place so long. There was no longer satisfying variety in going down to Carson to report the proceedings of the legislature once a year, and horse-races and pumpkin-shows once in three months. They had to go raising pumpkins and potatoes in Washoe Valley, and, of course, one of the first achievements of the legislature was to institute a ten-thousand-dollar agricultural fair to show off forty dollars' worth of those pumpkins in. However, the territorial legislature was usually spoken of as the asylum. I wanted to see San Francisco. I wanted to go somewhere. I wanted—I did not know what I wanted. I had the spring fever, and wanted a change principally, no doubt. Besides, a convention had framed a state constitution. Nine men out of every ten wanted an office. I believed that these gentlemen would treat the moneyless and the irresponsible among the population into adopting the Constitution, and thus well-nigh killing the country. It could not well carry such a load as a state government, since it had nothing to tax that could stand a tax, for undeveloped minds could not, and there were not fifty developed ones in the land. There was but little realty to tax and it did seem as if nobody was ever going to think of the simple salvation of inflicting a money-penalty on murder. I believed that a state government would destroy the flush times, and I wanted to get away. I believed that the mining stocks I had on hand would soon be worth one hundred thousand dollars, and thought if they reached that before the Constitution was adopted, I would sell out and make myself secure from the crash the change of government was going to bring. I considered one hundred thousand dollars sufficient to go home with decently, though it was but a small amount compared to what I had been expecting to return with. I felt rather downhearted about it, but I tried to comfort myself with the reflection that with such a sum I could not fall into want. About this time a schoolmate of mine, whom I had not seen since boyhood, came tramping in on foot from the Reese River, a very allegory of poverty. The son of wealthy parents, here he was, in a strange land, hungry, bootless, mantled in an ancient horse-blanket, roofed with a brimless hat, and so generally and so extravagantly dilapidated that he could have taken the shine out of the prodigal son himself, as he pleasantly remarked. He wanted to borrow forty-six dollars, twenty-six to take him to San Francisco, and twenty for something else, to buy some soap with, maybe, for he needed it. I found I had but little more than the amount wanted in my pocket, so I stepped in and borrowed forty-six dollars of a banker, on twenty days' time, without the formality of a note, and gave it him, rather than walk half a block to the office, where I had some specie laid up. If anybody had told me that it would take me two years to pay back that forty-six dollars to the banker, for I did not expect it of the prodigal, and was not disappointed, I would have felt injured and so would the banker. I wanted a change. I wanted variety of some kind. It came. Mr. Goodman went away for a week and left me the post of chief editor. It destroyed me. The first day I wrote my leader in the forenoon. The second day I had no subject and put it off till the afternoon. The third day I put it off till evening. 
and then copied an elaborate editorial out of the American Cyclopedia, that steadfast friend of the editor, all over this land. The fourth day I fooled around till midnight, and then fell back on the Cyclopedia again. The fifth day I cudgeled my brain till midnight, and then kept the press waiting while I penned some bitter personalities on six different people. The sixth day I labored in anguish till far into the night, and brought forth nothing. The paper went to press without an editorial. The seventh day I resigned. On the eighth, Mr. Goodman returned and found six duels on his hands. My personalities had borne fruit. Nobody, except he has tried it, knows what it is to be an editor. It is easy to scribble local rubbish. With the facts all before you, it is easy to clip selections from other papers. It is easy to string out a correspondence from any locality. But it is unspeakable hardship to write editorials. Subjects are the trouble. The dreary lack of them, I mean. Every day it is drag, drag, drag. Think and worry and suffer. All the world is a dull blank. And yet the editorial columns must be filled. Only give the editor a subject, and his work is done. It is no trouble to write it up. But fancy how you would feel if you had to pump your brains dry every day in the week, fifty-two weeks in the year. It makes one low-spirited simply to think of it. The matter that each editor of a daily paper in America writes in the course of a year would fill from four to eight bulky volumes like this book. Fancy what a library an editor's work would make, after twenty or thirty years' service. Yet people often marvel that Dickens, Scott, Bulwer, Dumas, etc., have been able to produce so many books. If these authors had wrought as voluminously as newspaper editors do, the result would be something to marvel at indeed. How editors can continue this tremendous labor, this exhausting consumption of brain fiber, for their work is creative and not a mere mechanical laying up of facts like reporting, day after day and year after year is incomprehensible. Preachers take two months' holiday in midsummer, for they find that to produce two sermons a week is wearing, in the long run. In truth it must be so, and is so. And therefore, how an editor can take from ten to twenty texts, and build upon them from ten to twenty painstaking editorials a week, and keep it up all the year round, is farther beyond comprehension than ever. Ever since I survived my week as editor, I have found at least one pleasure in any newspaper that comes to my hand. It is in admiring the long columns of editorial, and wondering to myself how in the mischief he did it. Mr. Goodman's return relieved me of employment, unless I chose to become a reporter again. I could not do that. I could not serve in the ranks after being general of the army. So I thought I would depart and go abroad into the world somewhere. Just at this juncture, Dan, my associate in the repertorial department, told me, casually, that two citizens had been trying to persuade him to go with them to New York, and aid in selling a rich silver mine which they had discovered and secured in a new mining district in our neighborhood. He said they offered to pay his expenses, and give him one-third of the proceeds of the sale. He had refused to go. It was the very opportunity I wanted. I abused him for keeping so quiet about it, and not mentioning it sooner. He said it had not occurred to him that I would like to go, and so he had recommended them to apply to Marshall, the reporter of the other paper. I asked Dan if it was a good, honest mine, and no swindle. 
he said the men had shown him nine tons of the rock which they had got out to take to new york and he could cheerfully say that he had seen but little rock in nevada that was richer and moreover he said that they had secured a tract of valuable timber and a mill site near the mine my first idea was to kill dan but i changed my mind notwithstanding i was so angry for i thought maybe the chance was not yet lost dan said it was by no means lost that the men were absent at the mine again, and would not be in Virginia to leave for the East for some ten days, that they had requested him to do the talking to Marshall, and he had promised that he would either secure Marshall or somebody else for them by the time they got back. He would now say nothing to anybody till they returned, and then fulfill his promise by furnishing me to them. It was splendid. I went to bed all on fire with excitement, for nobody had yet gone East to sell a Nevada silver mine and the field was white for the sickle. I felt that such a mine as the one described by Dan would bring a princely sum in New York, and sell without delay or difficulty. I could not sleep, my fancy so rioted through its castles in the air. It was the blind lead come again. Next day I got away on the coach, with the usual eclat attending departures of old citizens, for if you have only half a dozen friends out there, they will make noise for a hundred, rather than let you seem to go away neglected and unregretted, and Dan promised to keep strict watch for the men that had the mine to sell. The trip was signalized, but by one little incident, and that occurred just as we were about to start. A very seedy-looking vagabond passenger got out of the stage a moment, to wait till the usual ballast of silver bricks was thrown in. He was standing on the pavement, when an awkward express employee, carrying a brick weighing a hundred pounds, stumbled and let it fall on the bummer's foot. He instantly dropped on the ground and began to howl in the most heart-breaking way. A sympathizing crowd gathered around, and were going to pull his boot off, but he screamed louder than ever, and they desisted. Then he fell to gasping, and between the gasps ejaculated, "'Brandy! For heaven's sakes, brandy!' They poured half a pint down him, and it wonderfully restored and comforted him. Then he begged the people to assist him to the stage, which was done. The express people urged him to have a doctor at their expense, but he declined, and said that if he only had a little brandy to take along with him to soothe his paroxysms of pain when they came on, he would be grateful and content. He was quickly supplied with two bottles, and we drove off. He was so smiling and happy after that that I could not refrain from asking him how he could possibly be so comfortable with a crushed foot. "'Well,' he said, "'I hadn't had a drink for twelve hours, and hadn't a cent to my name. I was most perishing, and so when that duffer dropped that hundred-pounder on my foot, I see my chance. Got a cork leg, you know.' And he pulled up his pantaloons and proved it. He was as drunk as a lord all day long and full of chucklings over his timely ingenuity. One drunken man necessarily reminds one of another. I once heard a gentleman tell about an incident which he witnessed in a Californian bar-room. He entitled it, Ye Modest Man Taketh a Drink. It was nothing but a bit of acting, but it seemed to me a perfect rendering, and worthy of Toodles himself. The modest man, tolerably far gone with beer and other matters, enters a saloon, twenty-five cents is the price for anything and everything, and specie the only money used, and lays down half a dollar, calls for whiskey and drinks it. The barkeeper makes change and lays the quarter in a wet place on the counter. The modest man fumbles at it with nerveless fingers, but it slips and the water holds it. He contemplates it, 
and tries again. Same result. Observes that people are interested in what he is at, blushes. Fumbles at the quarter again, blushes. Puts his forefinger carefully, slowly, down, to make sure of his aim. Pushes the coin toward the barkeeper, and says, with a sigh, <laughs> Give me a cigar. Naturally, another gentleman present told about another drunken man. He said he reeled toward home late at night, made a mistake, and entered the wrong gate. Thought he saw a dog on the stoop, and it was an iron one. He stopped and considered, wondered if it was a dangerous dog, ventured to say, Be begone! No effect. Then he approached warily, and adopted conciliation. Pursed up his lips and tried to whistle, but failed. Still approached, saying, Poor dog! Doggy, doggy, doggy! Poor doggy dog! Got up on the stoop, still petting with fond names, till master of the advantages, then exclaimed, Leave, you thief! Planted a vindictive kick in his ribs, and went head over heels overboard, of course. A pause, a sigh or two of pain, and then a remark in a reflective voice, Awful solid dog! What could he been eating? <laughs> Rocks, perhaps. Such animals is dangerous. That's what I say. They're dangerous. If a man— <laughs> If a man wants to feed a dog on rocks, let him feed him on rocks. It's all right. But let him keep him at home, not have him laying round promiscuous, where, where people's liable to stumble over him when they ain't noticing. It was not without regret that I took a last look at the tiny flag. It was thirty-five feet long and ten feet wide, fluttering like a lady's handkerchief from the topmost peak of Mount Davidson, two thousand feet above Virginia's roofs, and felt that doubtless I was bidding a permanent farewell to a city which had afforded me the most vigorous enjoyment of life I had ever experienced. And this reminds me of an incident which the dullest memory Virginia could boast at the time it happened must vividly recall, at times, till its possessor dies. Late one summer afternoon, we had a rain-shower. That was astonishing enough in itself to set the whole town buzzing, for it only rains, during a week or two weeks, in the winter in Nevada, and even then not enough at a time to make it worth while for any merchant to keep umbrellas for sale. But the rain was not the chief wonder. It only lasted five or ten minutes. While the people were still talking about it, all the heavens gathered to themselves a dense blackness as of midnight. All the vast eastern front of Mount Davidson, overlooking the city, put on such a funereal gloom that only the nearness and solidity of the mountain made its outlines even faintly distinguishable from the dead blackness of the heavens they rested against. This unaccustomed sight turned all eyes toward the mountain, and as they looked, a little tongue of rich golden flame was seen waving and quivering in the heart of the midnight, way up on the extreme summit. In a few minutes the streets were packed with people, gazing with hardly an uttered word at the one brilliant mote in the brooding world of darkness. It flicked like a candle-flame, and looked no larger, but with such a background it was wonderfully bright, small as it was. It was the flag. Though no one suspected at first, it seemed so like a supernatural visitor of some kind, a mysterious messenger of good tidings, some were fain to believe. It was the nation's emblem, transfigured by the departing rays of a sun that was entirely palled from view, 
and on no other object did the glory fall, in all the broad panorama of mountain ranges and deserts, not even upon the staff of the flag, for that, a needle in the distance at any time, was now untouched by the light and undistinguishable in the gloom. For a whole hour the weird visitor winked and burned in its lofty solitude, and still the thousands of uplifted eyes watched it with fascinated interest. How the people were wrought up! The superstition grew apace that this was a mystic courier come with great news from the war, the poetry of the idea excusing and commending it, and on it spread, from heart to heart, from lip to lip, and from street to street, till there was a general impulse to have out the military and welcome the bright waif with a salvo of artillery. And all that time one sorely tried man, the telegraph operator, sworn to official secrecy, had to lock his lips and chain his tongue with a silence that was like to rend them, for he, and he only, of all the speculating multitude, knew the great things this sinking sun had seen that day in the east, Vicksburg fallen, and the Union arms victorious at Gettysburg. But for the journalistic monopoly that forbade the slightest revealment of eastern news till a day after its publication in the California papers, the glorified flag on Mount Davidson would have been saluted and re-saluted that memorable evening, as long as there was a charge of powder to thunder with. The city would have been illuminated, and every man that had any respect for himself would have got drunk, as was the custom of the country on all occasions of public moment. Even at this distant day I cannot think of this needlessly marred supreme opportunity without regret. What a time we might have had! End of chapter 55